The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. This week we are continuing a, a dialogue. That's what Jim's calling it. May as well stick with that terminology where we, uh, for the past couple of weeks, have elicited feedback from our our uh, podcast listeners to share with us kind of how they're doing their own retirement planning. Tons of do-it-yourselfers uh, listen to the show. We know that because of the uh, uh, emails we receive from listeners. And we've asked them to kind of share how they are maybe taking pieces of what we talk about how we deploy things in our our practice and taking their own vision of things, their own version, maybe little tidbits from other other uh, planners, other podcasts in the world, other educational systems that might describe how to approach a retirement plan. And uh, we're sharing some of those on our shows and uh, here, and that's going to continue. We're getting quite a few of these, so this is going to continue for a while. But uh, Jim's got a uh, an email from a listener that we're going to start off with here. And then uh, this was all prompted by an article. Um, I think it was a smart money article. Jim will correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, article where the the people who had written in were, were very nervous about certain things. And we read through that article and suggested you know, some of what we promote as a way of looking at retirement planning might have addressed some of those things uh, that that person was concerned about for their own retirement planning. And that's then evolved into, gee, you know, how are other people attacking these key concerns or issues with their retirement plans? So I'll bring Jim in now and he can, uh, he's the collector of all the emails. So he'll be able to bring forth the email from the listener that he wanted to share with us today and, and we'll walk through it and, and maybe you guys can get little tidbits for your own uh, retirement planning. Did you say smart money? I thought it was, was it smart money? Now smart money is an old 
finance, uh, personal finance uh, magazine that yeah. isn't even in publication anymore. Uh, it was Smart Asset. Smart Asset. That's what it was. Sorry. Yeah. Smart Money was a magazine. I think, uh, yeah, I think it was an offshoot. While. It was a Wall Street Journal publication. Yeah. I, I could be totally wrong on that, but I think yeah. it was a uh, Wall Street Journal's version of the old money magazine. Yeah. So Smart Asset. Smart yeah. Asset, which is a billion-dollar firm. It's a massive firm. But they they uh, get people in front of financial advisors. They're a referral service for advisors. Advisors pay them for leads, if you will. And uh, Smart Asset had wrote the article. But what really kind of started this conversation, this dialogue, as I'm calling it, was shortly after Chris and I did that Smart Asset um, story or, or question. It was a question written in. Um, no, excuse me. I apologize wholeheartedly. Smart Asset was the Roth conversion article, which was not uh, well received by me. This was a Market Watch article market watch. answered, answered okay. by some gentleman named Quinton. And it was the couple where the wife right. wanted to curtail spending on fun for the first five years of their retirement. And the husband did not. The husband wanted to spend money on fun. Right. The wife was worried about outliving their assets. And the husband was worried about not being able to do fun later because right now they have the, the money and the health to enjoy themselves. So it got me thinking of that's, that very issue is one of the reasons I came up with my approach, our concept. We call it the secure retirement income process. But our whole approach to retirement planning, the fund numbers, see-through portfolio, minimum dignity floor style approach that we talk about often on, on the podcast. But it was then a very, very polite discussion from two very intelligent and well-respected people in my industry, Wade Fow and Alan Roth, uh, on how to fund a spending approach in retirement, once a quote-unquote withdrawal rate has been chosen, the, the discussion between Alan and Wade was not what a safe withdrawal rate should be, what percentage of the portfolio it should be. It was not that. It was once that was determined, what is the best way to fund some or all of that um, cash flow? Uh, Wade had referenced an article he wrote in May, which Alan did point out in his rebuttal to Wade, was sponsored by and Wade received compensation for producing this article, uh, pretty much the insurance industry, the annuity part of the insurance industry, uh, paid for the research and, and Wade admitted he received a stipend to, to write the, the research paper. And um, what was the best way uh, to fund it? Uh, no surprise, Wade, uh, his uh, research papers thought a fixed indexed annuity would be a wonderful way to fund it in conjunction with equities. Whereas Alan, if anybody is familiar with Mr. Roth, I'm not. He's based in Colorado. He's just, in my opinion, very, very, very knowledgeable on investing. I read his writings all the time. But he's a big proponent of bond ladders to fund, uh, specifically a bond ladder of tips 
uh, to fund the spending because tips can keep pace with inflation, whereas annuity payments generally remain flat. I say generally because they don't have to. And uh, Chris will probably get into that later on in the show. So anyways, that got me thinking, Chris, that both these very intelligent people were still failing to address what I feel is overlooked in retirement. And that is helping people spend on fun while they can. And we shared on last week's show I was, I can't even remember at this point, I think it was the Q&A show that I shared this on, not the EDU show last week, all a blur it seems, but a very sad email from a listener, if you remember, who had to forcefully be, not forcefully, but involuntarily, I guess you could put it, retired due to health reasons. And he retired into what he thought would be his go-go phase, and then sadly COVID hit, uh, so he retired, I think, in 2019 uh, at 62. I'm just going purely from memory. I don't have his email in front of me. And then COVID hit. And by time COVID was was gone and he could start doing things again, his health had changed even more. And he was now in the no-go phase. So he never even had go-go. He went right into slow-go, which then transcended almost into no-go. Uh, all driven by health. And we paired that with the email from a couple who decided, why wait four more years until we retire? We're going to Mm -hmm. crunch the numbers now and try to enjoy ourselves while we're still working. Maybe not fully because they're still working. They're not retired yet, but try to do a little bit more now while they can. Both of those emailers picked up on what had driven me throughout my career, and that is the notion that you're going to need fun money in your 80s and 90s. I'm not saying you're not going to enjoy yourself. It's just not going to be at the same level as someone in their 50s or 60s may enjoy themselves. And that, to me, is where the industry Uh, drops the ball, if you will, on retirement planning. They limit you to a safe withdrawal rate, and then they pat themselves on the back if their analysis shows you're going to die with even more money than you started retirement with, as if that was a success. Maybe to them it is, maybe to the type A investment geek personalities, which a lot of you Vanguard VGs are. And maybe it makes you feel proud knowing on your deathbed you died with more money than you entered retirement as if that's a success. And for that subset of the population, it probably is a success. And that's why all the articles out there push that. Now, the cynic in me says the AUM, especially the uncapped AUM managers, they love it because throughout your distribution phase, their pay isn't dropping as you're consuming your assets. Their pay continues to rise because they're growing your wealth and they're telling you that this is a wonderful thing. Now, that's the cynic in me. But they continue to get money as opposed to helping you consume assets and every year their pay drops. That would be the cynic in me. I'm not sure where the industry falls, the cynic side or the investment geek side. 
But I don't think most people approach life that way, at least not me. And this is the way I have approached my own retirement and the retirement for my uh, clients or the firm's clients. They're not my clients. They're the firm's clients. We believe in people enjoying themselves, not dying with the most. You're not going to get bragging rights in, in the cemetery. You're not going to get a closer seat to the right hand of God because you went in with millions. That's not going to help you at all. Instead, I feel the industry unnecessarily constrains spending on fun early in retirement. And these two very smart people were having a very public disagreement in this investment forum, politely slamming into each other, saying, hey, tips are better. And your advice was tainted because you were paid to produce this for the insurance. And Wade saying, no, it wasn't tainted. This truly does show a better approach using annuities. And they were just debating it back and forth. But it was all about constraining you to spending a certain amount of money every year. And my thoughts are, once your minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care is taken care of, and our preference with lifetime guaranteed secure income, and yes, that will come down to how do we adjust for inflation, and we're going to get to that momentarily. I feel strongly that people, if you had a budget, what I call your fun number, it's essentially a budget. It's a dollar amount. How much of your wealth, whether it's half a million, a million, five million, whatever it may be, what dollar amount of that can be spent on fun and then encourage you, not require you, but encourage you to pace yourself, yes, because you don't know how long your, your ability to spend on fun will last, but to encourage you to spend a lot of it early in retirement when you can. That's what we're trying to do. So I asked people to share, what is your approach? Because there is, we, we often say, Chris, financial planning is part art, part science. I truly feel how you fund retirement is an art based on science, but it's an art. There's many different ways. The, the safe withdrawal rate gets all the headlines and is probably used by anecdotally 90 plus percent of advisors. I have no idea if that percentage is right or not, but the vast majority of advisors use the safe withdrawal rate. But there's other smaller ways, uh, the God rail approach, the ceiling and floor approach. There's all different ways, not just safe withdrawal rate. And then there's my approach, which has no following. I mean, outside of what Chris and I do and listeners to this podcast, it's not known in the industry, but it's just an approach that I passionately believe in, as you know. But here's an email, Chris. Let's jump into an email. The listener wanted to share a definite VG, Vanguardian engineer style. Doesn't I have no idea if his money's at Vanguard or not, 
but I've termed you, you listeners to VGs. You have an engineering mindset. Even if you're not an engineer, you have an engineer like thought process. You're probably very good with Excel. You most likely are managing your own money using low cost passive investing, whether it's at Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, wherever is meaningless. I get the impression this person is a VG and he wanted to share how he's doing it. And he asks us a few questions on his approach, Chris. Okay. 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 Says, hi, Jim. Dialogue. He begins. I've been listening to your podcast for two years. They are informative. And I think you and Chris make a great team. I'll try to keep this as concise as possible. And I will not ramble on like Chris does. He knows you to the T. Oh, clearly, clearly. He's got you nailed. Okay. For background, I subscribe and like both Alan Roth and Wade Files emails mm. and consider myself to be a bobblehead. I currently use the service. Oh, excuse me. Boglehead, bobblehead, not yeah. bobblehead. I apologize to all the bogleheads out there. I currently use the service of Plan Vision as well as the service of New Retirement to do planning for my wife's upcoming retirement in 2024. I have already retired. I've never heard of either of those websites. No. Have you Plan Vision or New Retirement? I have not. Okay. So he just wanted to share with all you listeners this is where he goes to crunch his numbers, I suppose. Okay. In both services, I have been able to do the following. Model my basic living expenses for the rest of my life. I think he means there, Chris, minimum dignity floor. What do you think? Yeah, I think basic is is what I would interpret as our equivalent to the uh, – or. Minimum dignity floors are equivalent to that. Okay. I can also model my fund spending up to whatever age I desire. Should I use? Well, he doesn't say should I use. He then says 75 or maybe 80 question mark. I'm not sure if he's asking us or telling us. Any thoughts on number two, bullet point two? Would you read it again for me? I can also model our fund spending up to whatever age I desire. 75-80 question mark. Well, I think there should be some fund spending assumed until you step foot in the grave, honestly. Uh, what I tell people is that fun in your 80s and 90s may very well be look different than fun in your 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, usually takes on a different form. And most of the time, that form is quite inexpensive. The type, If you think about the type of fun that 80, 85, 90, 95-year-olds have, it's not like they aren't having fun or enjoyment in their lives. We want to have enjoyment till the very last day. But I think it's appropriate, and this is kind of what leads us to embrace the the, the go go slow go no go concept, is that uh, early on the type of fun that a lot of people envision having in their sixties and early seventies in particular can 
be very expensive. Usually comes down to travel or expensive hobbies. If you don't travel at all and you have no expensive hobbies, it's fairly difficult to spend a lot of money on fun. Unless I guess unless you were at a, a, an expensive concert every night of the week or something. And so there are probably exceptions, but just from what I see people do, if they once the travel and expensive hobbies start to to slow down or stop maybe, that's a pretty clear drop off in the dollars required to have fun. But I would say don't stop your fun projections um, at a, at a certain age, just, uh, reduce them. And that's why I had you reread it. I, I, I didn't pick up on if he was talking about all fun or if he's just talking about go, go fun. Cause 75 or 80 is kind of where a lot of people consider reasonably their go, go period is likely to end. Yeah. I want to add a little bit to this little background also, uh, into my mindset. So years ago, when I was very involved in the firm as far as doing a lot of the planning and the delivery, we had paper uh, guides, we called them. We actually uh, had them professionally printed at Kinko's. And the cover was actually a photograph of a, a beautiful hike that I had done. And then we binded them ourselves with those little spiralizer folks. So it came out as about a 50 or 60 page and it looked like one of those notebooks that we used in, in high school with the, the spirals in them. That guy had we, hit 83 pages before we abandoned it. Was it 80, yeah. 83? Okay. Yeah. It was crazy. So we would send this paper guide out that was created in-house to ask questions of people. They were some multiple choice questions, some essay questions, fill in the blank questions. But it would give us a lot of the data that we needed to program in to start doing your projections. It's become digitalized now. Anyways, over the years, people shared with me. And we ended up taking it out of the guide eventually. The hardest part for them to fill in out of what Chris said was 80-something pages. The hardest part, and it was probably no more than five or six pages, the hardest part for them to fill in, the fun spending. Because I actually was asking them, how often are you going to travel? How often are you going to do this? How often are you going to do that? Do you have any bucket list items that you want to do? People could not fathom. They could not figure out what are they going to do for fun? What are they going to spend on? And it soon got me to realize that it was the precursor to putting the idea in my head of giving people the budget, just letting them know what they could spend on fun. What does it matter one iota how much they're going to spend every year? I could care less. Now, we didn't know about COVID coming, but I used to give an example to colleagues, to staff, to myself, because I used to drive to the office every day. 35 to 45 minute phone a phone call no, drive every day. I did a lot of talking to myself, literally. Some of the best thinking I ever do is in my car while I'm driving. When I drive cross country now to Cincinnati, it's just a brainstorming session with myself. I kid you not. I don't really sit there and have conversations, but I do think out loud. I, and I often talk as I think. 
But one of the concepts I started paying attention to, Chris, and what got me thinking of the fun number is people, when I asked them, what did they think of the guide? What did they think of the process? Many, many people said the hardest part for them was trying to articulate what they wanted to do for fun. And I started thinking to myself, what the hell does it matter? And why am I limiting my clients to fun? Why am I telling them, oh, you told us you can't spend more than $23,000 a year or or $123,000 a year. That was your budget. You can't go over. Who the hell am I to tell someone how fast or slow they should spend money on fun? Maybe I should instead remove a lot of that. Not all of it, but a lot of those questions and instead help give them a budget and say, This is what you can spend on fun. So I don't care how you all do it, all you do it yourselfers. I'm just trying to give you ideas. But I know here at our firm today, when we come up and give someone their quote unquote fun number, we're not going to get onto this call, excuse me, into this show on on how we come up with that. We've We've discussed it many times in the past, and we will discuss it on many future shows. Once you get that fun number, the breaking down between go-go and slow-go slash no-go, we kind of put those two in the same category at the firm. Go-go and then slow-go, no-go. It's really coming down to an investment question. If your fun number came to 1.6 million, and I'm just making that up out of thin air, whether it's 600,000 or 2.6 million doesn't matter. Please no negative emails if the number's too small or negative emails if that number is too big. It's an example. If it's 1.6 million, we then talk with clients how much of that from an emotional standpoint and also keep in track of your expected go-go phase when you'll have the health inclination, desire, and ability to spend on fun. Some people know, sadly, like that listener from last week, gee, Jim, because of my health issue, because of this, because of that, because of the other thing, I don't feel my Go-go face is going to be more than five years, and that's pushing it. Other people will say, because I retired at 57, I'm very healthy. I run marathons. I've never had anything wrong with me. My spouse is just as healthy. We are anticipating a 15-year go-go phase. Whatever the case may be, you will have an idea of how long that time period is But what we also encourage people to do on that 1.6 million, what percent of it do you want us to allocate to go-go? Follow our logic here. And the logic is, if someone says 50, 60, 70%, or 80, we don't force them to spend those dollars in go-go. But from an emotional standpoint, we want people to know, especially if they're asset management clients of ours and they hired us and we're doing positioning for them. Money in go-go, we put 
a principal protected risk capacity limit on that. And we want to make sure a good portion of those dollars are protected so people will not emotionally freak out, which they're going to do anyways when they retire, but they won't emotionally freak out and not spend on fun because now the markets are dropping. And they're dropping most likely due to a black swan that came out of nowhere. The Ukrainian war expands. Uh, COVID was the more recent one. There could be anything that could cause a black swan to happen. The housing in 08 just out of the blue uh, imploded. Whatever causes this unanticipated market correction, black swan style event, we don't want people to force go spending on fun. So when someone says we want to earmark 60% of our money, randomly choosing that or 50 or 80, whatever it is, we want to earmark 60% of those dollars to go-go. That tells us we want to take those dollars and put principal protection on them. Now, if somebody has a five-year expected go-go phase based on what they know about their health, we're going to go to great lengths to protect all of those dollars from principal protection. But if someone is retiring at 57, in my other example, and have a 15 to 18-year go-go phase, dollars well into the future, well into the future, we're not going to really put much principal protection on them. We're going to want to invest them based on the risk tolerance of the client. We're not going to invest them aggressively if they have a conservative amount of risk tolerance. Why? Because they'll still freak out if dollars that even though they know they're not going to spend them for 12 years, they may emotionally freak out because they don't have the risk tolerance for it and not spend on fun. And that to me is failure. So we do have to pay attention to their risk tolerance. But if they have a moderate to aggressive risk tolerance and they have go-go dollars that we don't think they're going to need for 12 years, we may invest those, even though they're in the principal protected risk capacity, if we feel confident they won't be needed for 12 years, we may invest those with no downside protection, fully uncapped growth. But dollars that they will need in the first few years are going to be fully protected. And dollars that they may need in years five through eight, we may have in the buffer strategy that we've talked about a lot on the podcast, utilizing options to protect the downside. Also, emotionally, they feel comfortable spending. Anyways, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but it's trying to get people to understand once you have your fun number, investing it is a factor of, yes, your sequence of return risk, but also your emotional risk, plus the time that you feel you'll be in the go-go phase. Okay, let's go on to his other things that he's doing. We are optimizing our social security. 
And I believe he's using both those programs to do so that he mentioned, Plan Vision and New Retirement. He does share, Chris, and maybe you can help him out here. He's modeling his health care in two phases. He has his pre-Medicare estimated health care expenses and post-Medicare estimated health care expenses. But he writes, this is the most difficult part of my process. It's hard for me to assume this part of my plan, mainly because of the rate of medical inflation. Anything you want to share on how you do it for medical expenses? Yeah, you know, that is an area where I'm talking to a lot of do-it-yourselfers they struggle with, and I totally get it because a lot of people are leaving a job where they had health care coverage at their job. Maybe it was that way for decades, and now they're forced into, if retiring before uh, uh, Medicare age, before 65, they're in this new, you know, the open market, if you will, or maybe COBRA as an extension of, of coverage from their employer. Maybe they're lucky enough to have some type of employer-based benefit uh, after retirement, but that's few and far between. And then we've got this wild world of, of Medicare um, at 65, which can be daunting, but does add clarity because it, everybody gets thrown into kind of a, a standardized system at that point, which makes the numbers uh, more known as far as what the current costs are. But then there's this whole inflation thing. So uh, let me, I guess just, I'll just share openly with how things have evolved for us in forecasting uh, healthcare as part of, you know, that's part of our minimum dignity floor set of expenses, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare. We traditionally list those in order of size. So healthcare being the last is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the most expensive category. And if it's not the most expensive category to start with, eventually, in our projections, healthcare becomes the largest category due to inflation. And I say that because we don't just throw um, standard, maybe average inflation for all goods and services at healthcare. Healthcare has shown to have uh, pretty aggressive inflation rates, oftentimes more than double the inflation rates of other uh, more common goods and services in our country. So uh, we utilize a data resource that gives us some information about the inflation for different aspects of healthcare, and by that I mean premiums versus out-of-pocket expenses, dental versus vision, and standard, you know, medical, etc. Those all have um, uh, different inflation rates historically in your area. And so we use that to inform us as to the inflation rates. I'd say right now, if I were to give you a kind of a ballpark median, I would say medical expenses once you're in on Medicare, are, uh, our assumptions are leading to overall for all medical expenses of somewhere in the high fives, about six or a little less than 6%. Um, that doesn't mean they're all that. That just means the weighted average of all of those healthcare expenses based on these data sources that we use have implied that over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, so inflation, you're gonna, I, I think it's, it's prudent to use a much higher inflation rate on your healthcare projections than standard inflation for most of your other expenses. Um, whether you use our approach or not uh, is totally up to you. I think doing some research in your area would be uh, 
would be valuable. That's you know what do-it-yourselfers do. They do their own research and then do what they think is best for them. But I think at least, I think if you were to, if you didn't want to do a lot of research, I think it would be reasonable to use uh, double on healthcare what you use for what you would think of as a standard. Um, but every area is different. If you're in an extreme area that has a lot of trouble hiring people to, to provide health care, like Alaska, um, that's a unique planning case unto itself. So you're going to have to use your own judgment. I'm not sh- saying everyone should use double standard inflation, but I think that's maybe a good starting point to consider. Um, but then this this whole transition from pre-Medicare to post-Medicare is important. Uh, Pre-Medicare... Uh, if you don't have any other resources, you can utilize, you can go on to the, uh, to the uh, healthcare uh, marketplace in your state and actually just get on there and get quotes for, for policies. And then you'll have to throw in some estimates for out-of-pocket costs. The policy estimates you're looking at will show you what the max out, uh, out-of-pocket costs are. It'll show you what it's, what's covered and what's not covered. There's, um, if you're going to have insurance for some of the subcategories like vision, dental, hearing, um, uh, AARP of, of all places has some resources that'll, that'll show you about uh, what some of those policies might cost. Uh, and then again, don't forget the out-of-pocket expenses, which we adjust them. Our, our data service uh, allows us to adjust the out-of-pocket estimates based on uh, current health status, which we think is, you know, an improvement over guessing. Um, but we do like to point out to people that their current health status isn't necessarily the health status in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. So I think being pretty conservative on your out-of-pocket estimates, which means estimate them kind of on the high end, is prudent. And that's what we tend to do. Um, so that's kind of how we look at it. Um, and uh, you can kind of take that and, and steal what, what parts of it you like and, and reject the rest and come up with your own version of it. But that's essentially how we approach it. All right. Yeah, I agree, Chris. It's me- Medical is tough, but I like the way this guy's doing it, and that's what's working for him. And I agree with you. I would rather err on the side of caution and estimate a higher uh, inflationary rate on medical expenses. Uh, worst case scenario, you have more money earmarked for medical, which could also be used for other minimum dignity floor expenses if you don't need it. I'd rather someone be in that position than underestimate uh, and need additional dollars that may not be there uh, in the future because they may have Yeah, and everyone spent- should remember how we're using this. We're using this as a component in our minimum dignity floor concept. And we're going to be off on those individual components. And I honestly believe that we are overestimating a bit the healthcare down the road because I don't think the inflation rates we've seen on healthcare are sustainable over the next 20 to 30 years. But um, I'm not going to just guess at something. You know, the data says one thing, and and we're following that data. Uh, but if we're off in any of these individual components, whether it be food, utilities, healthcare, which I just mentioned, uh, you know, when you're approaching it that way as a basket, if you're a little high on one, that will end up covering up where you were maybe a little short on something else, and where, you know, the whole thing could fall apart. And, you know, this is maybe where Alan Roth is particularly concerned is um, if inflation just for everything ends up being much higher than expected, what are you going to do about that? And, I mean, we'll probably circle back and talk a little bit about Alan's, Alan Roth's 
proposal versus how we see that here in a moment. But Okay, I like that. Okay. Uh, and then he sums it up with uh, our portfolio is 50-50 stocks to bonds, and we intend to have an increasing glide path as we age. So he's taking a funding approach, sounds to me, where he is going to optimize his Social Security. He never mentions pension. He never mentions utilizing an income annuity. I'm guessing he's going to fund the rest of his retirement, which is perfectly fine, with a withdrawal strategy. He's going to manage that withdrawal strategy by having a 50-50 portfolio now with an increasing glide path to equities as he ages. My only caution on that, because 50-50 is a moderate portfolio, but I would not say it is a sound strategy for handling sequence of return risk early in retirement. Uh, Michael Kitsis, who is one of the, I don't think he's the only, but he's one who has done a study with another gentleman. I forget who Kitsis did the study with. Uh, and had encouraged not necessarily only doing it as an increasing glide path, but said, hey, this is something you may want to consider. His thought process was, I believe that on day one of retirement, you have the most conservative portfolio you are ever going to have. And I think in his study, and I could be wrong on this, I'm not 100% sure. I read his study many years ago. I think it was 100% fixed income day one. And then throughout your retirement, especially after the first, I forget in his study what X is, but X in this conversation is the riskiest time for sequence of return risk. I, to me, it's a 10-year X, uh, five years before retirement, five years into retirement, that 10-year window. I'm not sure what Kitsis's opinion was on that or, or yours as a Vanguard VG of how long your sequence of return window is. But during that window, the thought was you should be your most conservative. So you're not spending from negatively falling portfolios. Now, this article or research was done prior to 2022 and the horrendous blow up in fixed income where fixed income was down double digits. And some fixed income, depending on what type of bonds you were looking at, were down high double digits, relatively speaking, high double digits uh, last year. But the thought of the increasing glide path is, is you have a very conservative portfolio early in retirement, you're most conservative. And then as you go through retirement to keep pace with inflation, you start increasing more and more and more and more to equities. I have nothing against people who want to do that approach. I personally never would um, per, with my own approach or have my firm ever do that. Now, in the future, when I retire or someday pass away, which hopefully is going to be a very long time from now, and if future people who run the firm want to adopt the different strategies, they may. But as long as I'm in charge, I won't. Because I think this is more of an academic approach than a true realistic approach. And try explaining to 
an elderly person who now at 60, this made brilliant sense, but now at 83, 84, 85, they don't quite follow the rationale of increasing more and more to equities because they're not keeping pace. Their brain is aging, like it or not. I saved an article recently from the journal. I'm sure many of you have seen it. We will go through uh, in the future on it where the studies have shown age 53, which we've been saying for years, but this recent article in the journal confirmed again, age 53 is at the point in time when the human brain starts losing its ability to understand financial concepts and continues to decline as we age. I just think this rising glide path to equity approach, which must be stuck to, if you start with a very conservative portfolio and you don't increase the rising glide path to equities and get the growth your portfolio is going to need on that type of withdrawal approach because you're not using guaranteed income or anything, you have to stick to this. It might be hard for someone 83, 84, 85 to remember that this is what they're going to do. It might be hard for someone stepping in to the portfolio to help manage it to understand or worse. It might be hard to explain to a future beneficiary who perhaps now their 93-year-old parent who has 100% equities, which is what this study is saying. You die with the most equity exposure. Someone who has 100% equities and died in the year that their portfolio dropped 50%, which, as you know, 100% equities easily could. Try explaining to that beneficiary why half their inheritance was lost to the market. Well, this was planned. This was, this was set way back when your parents were in their 60s. This is what they were going to do. Try explaining that to a beneficiary who just saw half their inheritance wiped out. Better have good E&O insurance, errors in emissions insurance. So I am not sold on the rising glide path. Well, I think me... academically it's brilliant academically, but real, realistically in application, I think it's going to be hard to pull off. What were you going to say, Greg? Well, let me let me clean up a couple things on the Kitsis uh, research. Is what what he saw is is we had a target retirement date, you know, sixty five is what he used, and his argument was the most um, you know the this most severe sequence of returns is immediately before and then in the ten to fifteen years following the. Um, retirement date is the greatest risk of sequence of returns. And to mitigate that, you dial heavy into um, fixed income, but then you start turning the dial back, that rising equity glide path. But his his was kind of a a, a notch almost where it, it um, well, it was V-shaped actually, and that's what he called it, the V-shaped equity glide path, where 10 years before retirement, you start dialing down to just 30% equities, so 70%, not not 100% fixed income. He, I've never seen him propose that. I wasn't sure. It's been yeah. a while since I yeah, saw yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, and it had been a while too, so I didn't have them off the top of my head, so I'm looking at it right now. So it's down to 70% there, and then the equity glide path rises, but doesn't rise forever to 100%. It, it caps out again at 60%. So his target, you know, his ending allocation is a 60-40, but you don't get to that until you're 80. So essentially the 15 years from 65 to 80, you're reducing your bond allocation from 30% down to, um, I'm sorry, from 70% down to 40%. 
So you're taking your equity exposure and going from 30% to 60%. And okay, so it so, wasn't the extremes that I had. Well, it was zero the same idea, yeah. Well, but, but you kind of took it and put it on steroids a little bit there. <laughs> um, but it doesn't, you know, it, it especially, and you, and you pointed out something, you know, recently the people, this, this happened recently enough that people's memories should not have lost it yet, which is, you know, you can have times when both fixed income and the equities are highly correlated and both go down at the same time. And yes, you're getting the, you know, coupon payments potentially, but the value is still, you know, the, the scariness is still there. Um, and, what isn't on this chart? He's he, on this. It's a very lovely chart that shows mapped on it on top of itself. There's the degree of risk, the sequence of returns risk, and then the equity um, allocation on here over time. So it's really informative. It's a really nice, clean graph. What isn't on here is the emotional risk. The emotional risk isn't on here, and 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 a, a, something that attacks just sequence of returns risk is missing. I think. At, at least half the issue <laughs> um, because dealing with people who are about to or have started retirement regularly, it's a real thing. The emotional reaction to your portfolio going down is a real thing. And just because you academically have taken an approach where it should all work out in the end, it still causes people to sacrifice their go-go years when they clench up and they don't spend. So I don't think it fully addresses, unless you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you have so much money that when, you're at, when your assets are down, you still look at it saying, oh, that's more money than I could ever, ever spend in my life, so I'm not worried. I mean, there's clearly cases like that, but not many people in that category listen to the podcast. Uh, so I don't think that's our target audience. So those of you out there, be prepared to freak out if your, you know, whatever your allocation is starts to run into some troubled waters in the early years of retirement, make sure you've taken an approach that has some way of dealing with that emotional risk piece, even if it's, you know, not our proposed approach to dealing with that. Um, but something, do something about it because it's a real thing. Right. And I'm glad you pointed out the breakdown. So 50-50 is not quite the breakdown in that study. I just want to encourage this listener to make sure he is comfortable with that uh, allocation. Uh, and that's how he wants to manage his sequence of return risk. Uh, and then, again, the, the final thing, Chris is right on emotion, but also simplicity. Don't lose sight of that. And it's the same thing that was lost in the argument between um, um, Alan Roth and Wade Fowle. A bond ladder is not easy. Now, maybe for someone with Alan Roth's capabilities and brain power and understanding, it is. But Alan Roth will not be as sharp as he is now in his 80s. Who's going to manage the bond ladder as you age? Whereas in annuity, the payments just come. They just come like a bottomless cup of coffee. Do not underestimate simplicity and how much of a benefit it's going to be as you age. I cannot stress that enough. And that's another reason we believe in it. We don't force anyone who's working with us to do it. 
they can continue to fund their retirement via withdrawal strategies. But the simplicity of simple lifetime payments, especially in the case of a couple where one of you might be geeking out on this stuff and listening to us as well as other podcasts and creating your own bond ladders or increasing glide paths as this listener is, what happens if you die first? Someone going to be able to step in and know what you're doing and handle it easily? Is that person going to know how to take over? If not, are they going to know how to hire someone to help? And the questions to ask and what to look for? Have you laid out in detail your approach, your strategy, your methodology, your, your, your Excel spreadsheets and your projections so someone can step in? This is things to think about that a lot of people don't think about. And, there, and there's high-fee AUM-focused guys out there who are targeting that situation. They're watching oh. for people, you know, that one of the spouses is gone, and now the other spouse is desperate to find help because the one spouse did it all and constructed it all and managed it all. And now they're out desperate, and a charismatic high-fee person all that work you did to protect your situation from those high fees it was now for for naught and 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 the vultures d- descend not that there's not going to be those pearly heartfelt wanting to help honestly but now you've put your remaining spouse who may not be as financially sophisticated as you are into having to figure out who are the vultures and who are the ones really trying to help me who aren't going to rake me over the coals that's a real thing I agree. Put some forethought. Put some forethought into that. So anyways, I have no problems with this gentleman's approach. I like it. I have concerns, which I shared. But if it's working for him and his wife, great. And this is the whole idea of the dialogue. We just wanted people to share their thoughts, their ideas, their questions, things like that. But a lot of this comes down, as Chris said, And I want to really quickly just go through this because it hit the nail on the head again, Chris. The freaking out that people will do when they retire. And this, and I probably won't get through the entire article, but I want to get through the beginning because it captures what Chris and I are trying to explain. Even if you're knowledgeable in this, you're still going to panic when you retire. I guarantee you, I will. Well, maybe not, but I think I might. I don't know if I will panic or not because I've, I've analyzed my retirement nine times to Sunday. But it's I don't still know. Going- I know. I work with people that have analyzed it themselves nine ways to Sunday, and um we did analysis for them. Everything looks fine. All the signals are go, go. First conversation post-retirement, and they share with me, I, I'm hoping it goes away, but right now I'm totally freaked out. Even I'm not sure planning can overcome this. Planning can help, but if you're prone to this, if you're prone to this, I think it just happens. I think it just happens. And the good news is, like a you know a good therapist, I keep telling them this is you know it'll fade, 
once you prove to yourself you can be retired and you can be living fine without a salary, without a paycheck coming in, your mind right now is telling you you can't possibly do it. It's actually your emotions probably telling you that 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 little voice in your head that isn't isn't perfectly rational is freaking out screaming at you what the heck are you doing we can't live without a paycheck what are you what are you trying to do eventually that voice fades or at least the other voices in your head can overcome it and it will fade off into the background at least that's what i've seen with people And that's where this article comes in, folks. This was sent as part of this dialogue series from a listener who picked up on it from, I think it was the Washington Post. Let me see. Yes, the Washington Post, um, whose tagline is democracy dies in darkness. I didn't know that was the tagline of the Washington Post. I don't read the, the Washington Post. But anyways, democracy dies in darkness. This is the personal finance reporter for the Washington Post writing. And it captures what we are saying. And it, to me, captures some of the reason I came up with what, again, we term the security time and income process, but it's the whole concept of minimum dignity floor, secure income, Go, go, slow, go, no, go fund spending, the whole concept of the fund number, the see-through portfolio, all of these catchphrases, if you will, which simply describe our approach to retirement because it's going to freak you out when you retire and not spending on fun when you retire is a risk because your ability to spend on fun as last week's listener pointed out and wanted me to share with all of you, is very real. This life is not a dress rehearsal for the real one. When you can no longer do something fun because you most likely suffered a medical condition or you're being pulled into family caregiving to someone else who suffered a medical condition, you generally don't get those years back. Time is the only commodity we have that can never be replaced. Money is a commodity, but if you lose it, at least if you lose it when you're younger, you have a chance to make it up. Time, when it's gone, it's gone. This is the personal finance writer. Title of her article. And it came out August 25th, so not that long ago. My husband just retired. She's still working, obviously, because she just wrote this article for the Washington Post. My husband just retired. I'm scared to death of running out of money. That's the title of the article. After 30 years of working for the federal government, this is the subtitle, I guess. I don't know what you call it, but there's the main title and then under it, also in bold. After 30 years in the federal government, now comes the hard part spending after decades of savings. Advice by Michelle Singletary. I'll quote her in here because this is her article. She writes, My husband and I are fortunate. We have enough for retirement. But ever since he retired, the end of June, I have felt a sleep-depriving dread. I worry we will outlive our money. We've spent the past few months scrutinizing every household expense, looking to make cuts. A $20 savings on a streaming service provided a 
fleeting moment of euphoria. Then <laughs> you found that cute. I thought, I wow. did because it sounds like they've picked up a new hobby. Cutting expenses? <laughs> Finding ways to cut little expenses here and there. Probably irrationally cutting expenses. A $20 savings on a streaming service providing a fleeting moment of euphoria. Then the anxiety return. A stock reminder for that for the first time in more than 30 years of marriage, we both won't be getting a regular paycheck. She's getting a paycheck. He's not. And I don't know if she's working full time anymore. So much retirement advice is about the accumulation phase of your life. It's drilled into us to save, save, save. I'm going to pause there and just say brilliant sentence because that's the entire industry. The entire financial planning industry is about accumulation. Very few advisors specialize on just distribution like our firm does. We don't even take accumulation people on as clients. In our industry, there's this big thing called the stickiness of assets. In other words, when your clients who are elderly die, what do you have to do to keep those assets that are going to be inherited on with you so you can keep collecting your AUM as a younger generation steps in? When our clients die, we assist the people who inherited their money into moving it because we don't specialize with people in the accumulation phase. Now, if people want to continue working with us, they can, but we honestly don't want them. We specialize in distribution. Anyways, I thought that sentence was so uh, indicative of of our industry, Chris. Mm -hmm. Then comes the time to start drawing down all those savings. Then she quotes a, from Morningstar. She says, quote, this is a quote now. Turning on spending is a different mindset, said Christine Benz, Director of Personal and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. With retirement, savings often condition, savers rather, with retirement, savers often condition themselves that money can go into their accounts, but nothing can ever, ever come out, she said. And that's exactly how I feel now. I'm fighting the panic because, Lord help us, when I stop working full-time, so I was right, she's still working now. When I stop working full-time and we start tapping both retirement accounts, the problem is all these what ifs that are flooding my brain. What if a major health crisis upends our plans? What if we live well into our 90s and older? Well, I can say there is where lifetime guaranteed secure income that comes month after month after month is going to help you. That bottomless cup of coffee. It's going to help you in your 90s or 80s, and it's going to help you in your 50s and 60s emotionally deal with spending money because you know this money never stops. I continue with the article now, folks. Part of my anxiety stems from the timing of my husband's retirement. It came sooner than we planned. A troubling workplace issue proved untenable. This sentence there reminds me of the email we got just a few days ago, Chris, that we did on the Q&A show 
with the person who also unexpectedly had to retire because of a health issue, not because of an untenable work issue. Is that what you were thinking too? Yes, exactly. It, it, I mean, it happens to people. We've had other cases we've described on the show. We've had clients we've worked with that, um, for whatever reason, can be health-related, can be the, the company-related. They're just uh, let go early, earlier than they thought. And um, even if they're healthy enough to go back to work, oftentimes it's very difficult to find something else when a disruption like that happens. So, um, yeah, the totally. I think it's totally something to be worried about. Okay. She continues. During the bad days of the coronavirus... Oops, I clicked out of the... Apologize, folks. Clicked out of the article. I have to click back in. Okay. During the bad... See, it's all electronic now. It's not paper. During the electronic days... During the electronic days... During the bad days of the coronavirus pandemic, a wave of older workers retired and helped spark the great resignation. But post-pandemic financial stress and inflation have ushered in the great return sending many people, including retirees, back to work. A Pew Research Center survey in 2022 found low pay, a lack of opportunities for advancement, and a feeling of disrespect at work are the top reasons Americans quit. My husband and I spent decades saving for retirement. He's in the government's thrift savings plan and me and my company's 401k plan. I'm going to pause there. One of the things that surprises me with her article here is her difficulty in still spending, even though her husband has a damn good pension. TSP is not as good as the old government CSRS that was not abolished, but done away with. And people were encouraged, I think about 87-ish or so, to start getting out of it. But prior to that change, uh, CSRS was phenomenal. But TSP, in conjunction with Social Security, provides quite a lot of lifetime secure income. Well, the TSP, unless they annuitize it, is their 401k. So I don't think the article said for sure that he had a FERS pension. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you're right. I assumed when I saw TSP, he also had He may FERS. very well, because that comes in a pair very frequently, is a, a FERS pension instead of Social Security, and then a TSP as an additional uh, savings vehicle, which is the equivalent of a 401k for federal government employees. But I've never heard of a case where someone has the TSP but not FERS. So I was I've been just ra- uh, yeah, I've been that. racking my brain as you've been describing that to see if I've run across a case where there's just a TSP. I don't know that I've seen one either. That doesn't mean they don't exist. I I would actually love to hear uh, from people. I can probably go look it up. But if somebody's out there listening who has just a TSP and no defined benefit plan, um. I don't, I don't think that exists, but I'd love to hear if it does. We worked with someone once who was not a government employee. They worked for a company who worked and was contracted to the government. And I think, I vaguely 
remember that maybe they had the access to the TSP, but not the pension. Mm. But I could be totally wrong on that. Yeah, maybe. Anyways, when I was reading this, folks, and it came to my mind again, if her husband does have the TSP, she doesn't mention it. Now, maybe on the next page she does. But um, the, the benefit of that pension should not be overlooked, especially when you have difficulty in spending money. And just because her husband may or may not have the TSP, excuse me, FERS pension, you can create your own pension. Don't be afraid to take a portion of your wealth and turn it into the lifetime stream of guaranteed income. But anyways, let's continue with her article. About 15 years ago, my husband and I began working with a financial professional to stress test our retirement. They scrutinized our financial holdings to see whether we had enough income, savings, and investments to live comfortably in retirement. They said we do. Before my husband retired, we paid off our home. We don't carry any credit card debt that we can't pay by the next billing cycle. We have no auto loans and we haven't for years. We saved to send all three children to college debt-free. And yet, I'm still scared. Mm -hmm. My husband, by the way, isn't and probably is booking tea time <clears throat> at an affordable local golf course this very moment. We do see that the shift from saving for retirement to living in retirement is one of the biggest transitions that a person will ever make, said Carrie Dogan, head of financial wellness and retirement at Fidelity. I know there are many people struggling to save for retirement. Among non-retirees, only 31% felt that their retirement savings were on track in 2022. And that's down 40% from just a year earlier. Well, we know why it's down 40%, Chris, because of the big market crash in 2022. That was your cue to say something. I'm still looking up. I'm still <laughs> seeing if I can find evidence of t having a TSP without FERS um, or, or an equivalent because you can have TSP with a, another, like a military pension or something. But um, yeah, I haven't found evidence of this yet. So, so I wasn't listening to every word there. So I didn't pick up on your cue. Okay, I'm going to jump down to the bottom of the article. I'm <laughs> going to skip a little bit where she... Uh, talks about a few examples she continues the one thing, i will say something i will say because as i was listening to the parts i was listening to um you, you everyone heard how well prepared they were paid off their mortgage um you know kids don't have debt they've you know done all these preparations they, there's a whole list of preparations they had to get themselves in a good financial position and then it ended with but i'm still freaked out <laughs> that, that's my point about you can do all the planning in the world and it doesn't mean you're not going to freak out okay she continues and this is towards the end i did skip if you read the article you're going to say wow why jim skip this page i'm just trying to be succinct here she continues, there are some things I can do and you can do to alleviate your anxiety. If you spent the time to develop a personal retirement plan, fall back on it 
while you are stressing. And I will agree there is where having a good plan comes in place. Because if you're stressing, you can go back to the plan and look things over. And if you're working with a planner, some of the best alpha, if you will, in the industry, advisor alphas saying the benefit of an advisor, we call it advisor alpha, is to be able to fall back on that advisor when you're freaking out and get them on the phone or get them on Zoom and say, hey, I'm freaking out. Show me where I'm being irrational. Help me here. Sometimes having that person to to help in these situations is invaluable. But I digress. If you spent the time to develop a personalized retirement plan, fall back on it when you're stressing. If you're concerned about having a regular stream of income, consider an annuity, Dogen said. But if you go that route, do your homework and make sure you understand the pros and the cons of the annuity and the fees involved. And that's something we fully encourage people to understand. The pros, the cons, the fees, how annuities work, the different types. That's why we talk about them on the podcast. But I think Dogen was the person from Fidelity. I can't remember at this point, but it was either Fidelity or Morningstar. One of the top concerns that we hear about from people living into retirement is the need for a steady stream of income, Dogen said. My husband and I decided against buying annuity. Oh, here it goes, Chris. There is a pension because we both have pensions and we will both collect Social Security. So here, folks, the woman has pensions and Social Security and she's still freaking out. Perhaps, perhaps having a see-through portfolio, mining all the way down, peeling the layers of the onion apart and showing her and her husband your minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care are taken care of with your lifetime stream of pension and Social Security. I can't fathom having a first pension, Social Security, Her private pension, most likely through the Washington Post, but I could be wrong, maybe a union that she belongs to, and her Social Security, all four of those combined, aren't going to take care of as a couple or as a widow or widower their minimum dignity floor. But I get the impression she's never done that calculation. She's never sat there and figured it out. So she has this unrational or irrational anxiety. She's cutting 20 bucks from a streaming service for Pete's sakes. Maybe if she had this see-through portfolio, stop looking at your damn portfolio, people, as this one big murky 70, 20, 80, 30, whatever the 80, 30, that doesn't even add up. 80, 20, 70, 30 portfolio. (laughs) Math just totally went off the rails there. (laughs) People enjoy the enthusiasm though. (laughs) What what I'm getting at, she points out at the beginning, most advisors and, and savers are doing accumulation. She's approached retirement with this murkiness of, I've got this portfolio, I'm loath to spend it. Why is she loath to spend it? She attributes it to the fact that during the accumulation years, you were just encouraged to put money in, not spend. 
Well, I'm saying she's loath to spend it because no one has sat there and showed her the value of those pensions. Now, she interviewed someone from Fidelity and Morningstar, one of them, because I can't remember their names, and that's just because I can't remember anyone's name. But whether it's the Morningstar Fidelity person was saying, hey, people can go out and buy annuities. And then the reporter did the right thing and said, hey, even though this person from Fidelity and Morningstar said to consider annuity, make sure you understand how it works and make sure you understand the fees. I'm fully on board with that. But I'm telling this writer and all of you If you simply identify your minimum dignity floor expenses, and especially someone with two pensions and two social securities, the two social securities are also adjusted for inflation. And at least one of the pensions, the first pension is also adjusted for inflation. My God, Chris, you do this. Do you really think this couple's minimum dignity floor is in any risk? I would be shocked. I I can't imagine that happening in their circumstance. Exactly. I think she needs to get this see-through portfolio concept. Start looking in, pull out the minimum dignity floor expenses, aging and long-term care to totally different, but kissing cousin, they're, they're equally related, but aging expenses That's when you you certainly don't need help taking care of yourself. It's not long-term care, but you need help around the house. You might need help with the landscaping. You might need help with house cleaning and maintenance and upkeep, those types of expenses. Taking care of aging and then long-term care, which is the plan you're going to put in place if someone needs help taking care of your life instead of your lifestyle, which is what aging-related expenses are. Long-term care expenses is taking care of your actual life, you as a person. Once she addresses that and a guaranteed inheritance and whittles it all through, folks, the dollars that are left in her portfolio, she never tells us, and rightfully so, she wants to keep it private. She never tells her readers how much assets they have amassed. But I think once she can figure out all these other elements and sees the benefit of her two pensions and two sources of social security, three of which I know for certain are adjusted for inflation. She may not be having so much anxiety. She may quit earlier. I don't know, but I'll continue because I want to wrap this up. My husband and I have decided against buying an annuity and I support that with two pensions and two social securities because we both have pensions and we both have Social Security. But Dogen also recommended I take a deep dive into expenses. The best thing individuals can do is actually sit down and go through their assumptions about what their spending is going to look like, Dogen said. Look at your necessities, housing, medical expenses, and utilities. Does this sound familiar, Chris? And try to cover as much as you can with guaranteed income. I wish we thought of that, Chris. Man, where did we go wrong? I'm being facetious there. Clearly. (laughs) Then consider what spending is within your control. Maybe you want to travel, but the stock market is down and you don't want to pull money out of your account. So the cruise may have to wait another year. Now that's where this. Yep, yeah, this is that's where this. 
That's where this Dogen person lost me. I never want our clients to have to put off spending on fun early in retirement during your go-go years because the market's down. Because you don't know how long it'll take. She, she said next year when the market recovers, 08 took six years for the market to recover. Now, this latest bear market looks like it's going to take a year or less, less than two years to recover if the current trajectory continues. But still, do you want to put off two years? No. You identify your fund number. You look through your darn portfolio. Dogen doesn't know this because she doesn't know uh, our approach. You look through your portfolio. You identify your fund budget. You identify those dollars that are going to be spent on go-go. And go-go dollars have a principal protected risk capacity. So they do not fall. Or the ones that fall, as I said earlier in this podcast, the ones that fall might not be needed for 8, 10, 12 years from now because you have a very long projected go-go. But the dollars that you're going to spend probably, in my opinion, for the first eight years, now that's my opinion, you could have a totally different opinion, but the first eight years or so of your go-go phase should be principally protected. So you don't put off. Because remember that email from last week from that listener? Remember my own damn stroke three years ago, or almost three years ago, which didn't kill me and didn't paralyze me, but my neurologist who did my thrombectomy said I should be paralyzed or I should be dead, and he's never seen such a recovery. What if it didn't? It happened in a hoppy, no pun intended. And my life would have been over. Whether If I was paralyzed, it still would have been over. The life I knew and my ability to spend on fun, it changes that quickly. So I disagree there. You're going to put off on fun. That is failure. And then there's just a few sentences left. Dogen also pointed out something that also calmed me down. Given the research that we see on happiness and the research on anxiety, people who are underspending in retirement are happy. There is a peace of mind and happiness even if they're not spending as much as they could. Who are we to say they should spend more? And I agree with that. But I also feel a lot of people underspend unnecessarily mm-hmm. out of irrational fear. And I just feel an advisor, a good advisor, they owe it to the client to at least show them you could, if you wanted to, spend more. Right. Not to hold a gun to the client's head and say, you have to spend this money. But if people hire our firm, and yes, right now we're not accepting clients. Everybody knows that. But in the not too distant future, we will be again. When people hire our firm, our job is to tell them if we feel they can spend on fun, if so, how much? And then it's up to the client to spend what makes them, yes, feel good and feel less anxiety over. But 
we don't necessarily encourage people to, oh, spend less so you'll feel happy. No, because Dogen missed out on the Debbie Downers that my dad talked about. The people who eventually something happened to in his retirement community. Uh, he doesn't live there anymore. He's in assisted living, as everyone knows. And dad's not doing well, but he's hanging in there. And, and I'll be seeing him next month. But um, I, 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 my mind went, okay, dad warned me to warn my listeners about Debbie Downers, the people in his previous retirement community who had money but didn't have the ability to spend it anymore. And they were full of regret. Why? Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do this when I had the chance? I think that is at least the responsibility of an advisor or you as a do-it-yourselfer. That's what I mean. Not just you have to go out and hire someone. Your responsibility is to determine what you could spend on fun. And then sit there with yourself, as I do as I'm driving, or sit there with your spouse and decide, okay, we could spend this. Doesn't mean we have to, but this is what we could spend. And then decide if you want to spend it or does it make you feel less anxiety or more happy to not spend as much? Then don't spend as much. But you owe it to yourself to at least figure it out so you don't become the Debbie Downer, when something is going to happen to you and not getting younger, stronger, and healthier people, you someday will be the quote-unquote other guy. And something's going to happen to you that should have happened to someone else, but you were that someone else. And you're going to not be as lucky as I was, thank God. And all of a sudden, you can't do that anymore. And you're going to sit there And think for the rest of your life, however long that will be, why the hell didn't I do that? Okay, I'll tie it all up. There's one last thing my husband keeps saying when I start worrying about our retirement. The kids will be happy to spend our money if we don't. And that's it. Anyways, I thought that was a good article Mm -hmm. to kind of allow you to go off on a tangent like you usually do and get very impassioned over. So I hope our listeners, you know, dealt with your tirade well and uh, at least enjoyed uh, what uh, the article said. Yeah, I like that. Uh, The most recent article you were talking about because it shows somebody that has all the resources to have a plan, have an understanding, has, has followed this for a long time, being the personal finance um, a person, no, not the only person. I don't think. I think the post has got more than one, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't read the post regularly either. But um, someone who should I mean, be in the know, and they still have these emotions to to work through, and additional planning. I think that could help with some of those emotions. But there's no magic bullet that's going to make all your freak freak out uh, moments go away completely. But if you can get them at least manageable, you can talk yourself through them. You can you can uh, maybe have it not undermine your decision making, even though you might feel that way. We all have had it, right? You feel angst or anxiety about something. If it's not too overwhelming, you can still make good decisions through that. You still have the feeling. You can still make good decisions through it. I think that's the goal is to get yourself to that place. 
not to think it's unattainable, uh, you know, the unattainable goal of having no emotions about retirement at all. That's a very rare person. And, and usually those are people that have the opposite of a well-informed plan. They might be completely ignorant as to their situation and they're just happy in their ignorance. Uh, don't be that person <laughs> either. That's not a good way to manage the emotions, but um, just reduce it to a point where you can um, uh, make your way through it and still, and then over time, uh, like I said, all everything I see over time, people kind of settle into this thing. If you talk to people been retired for five to 10 years, you'll, I think they'll tell you almost unanimously, unanimously that, oh yeah, I got the hang of it now. I got no problem being retired now. I, I, uh, we know how to do this thing now. Um, so, but thanks for bringing that. And, uh, yeah, that, I thought I will thank the listener who sent mm-hmm. it to us a couple of weeks ago when we first did the dialogue. Cause I don't read the, the Washington post, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed this woman's article. I'm going to start following her or at least trying to read more of, of her writings. Um, because she, she writes very well. She knows what she's doing there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just curious to see, uh, what else she, she espouses on, but um, anyways, hopefully people benefited from this series we're doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many more uh, weeks this dialogue will, will last. We've received a lot of emails. I'm going to try to get to them, if not now, into the future. So I do appreciate everyone who is sending us dialogue. Remember, in the subject line, put dialogue. So that will uh, allow me to know that it's for this series. And if you have questions on the fun number or our approach, if you could also put in the subject line fun number or even dialogue fun number, that tells me it's a dialogue show, but it has to do with a fun number. Because I envision us doing a couple of shows in the future dedicated solely to the fun number because we are getting a lot of questions on that concept as well, Chris. Okay. Sounds good. So if you want to send those emails directly to Jim, Jim at Jim helps.com. That's Jim H E L P S.com and, uh, indicate uh, dialogue. If it has to do with this current series in the subject line and we'll uh, take a look at those and thank everybody for listening. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor.
Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.